You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me look at you. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Oh, boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I've got a busy weekend this weekend, so I'm recording this only a couple of days after last week's episode, so everything's exactly the same for me because it's two days later. So this week, obviously I didn't get to the movies in two days. We're just getting right into the stuff. This is a long episode anyway, so it all works out. Okay, this week, a teenage girl kills her mother's abusive boyfriend. Or did she? Cheryl Crane, the 14-year-old daughter of blonde bombshell Lana Turner, claims she murdered Johnny Stampinato after he threatened herself and her mother. But some close to Lana at the time say that's a load of Hollywood make-em-ups. Today, we'll cover the early life of Lana Turner, the events that led to her meeting mobster Johnny Stampinato, what happened on his last night on this mortal coil, and the fallout and rumors that persist to this day. At the end of this episode, you'll have to ask yourself, did Cheryl kill Johnny Stompanato, or did she cover for her movie star mother? With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Johnny Stompanato was dead. Dead as a doornail. After one fight too many with his gal, it seems her daughter did away with the abusive man once and for all. But as blood saturated the pink carpet of the bedroom, a mystery took root as people pondered what really transpired on the night of April 4th. Julia Jean Turner, whom would one day take the world by storm as Lana Turner, was born on February 21, 1921, in Wallace, Idaho, a small mining community. When she was six, the family relocated to San Francisco, and her parents split soon after. Tragedy would be a constant companion in Lana's life as, on December 14, 1930, her father won some money at a craps game, stuffed his winnings into his left sock, and headed for home. He was later found bludgeoned to death with his left shoe and sock missing. The murder was never solved. His death had a profound effect on Lana for the remainder of her life. After converting to Roman Catholicism in the mid-1930s, Lana subsequently attended the Convent of the Immaculate Conception in San Francisco in order to become a nun. But her mother developed respiratory problems and was advised by her doctor to move to a drier climate, so the two picked up and moved south to Los Angeles. How Lana Turner was discovered has its own mythos surrounding it that no one has ever been able to prove one way or the other. Legend has it that she was discovered at Schwab's Pharmacy in Hollywood, which Lana later claimed was fabricated by a gossip columnist. Lana's version of events goes like this. 
While she was a junior at Hollywood High School, she decided to skip typing class and instead went to the Top Hat Malt Shop and bought a Coke. For you LA-based people, this place existed where the Hollywood Rite Aid next to the Chick-fil-A is on Sunset. So add that to your, you know, next tour of LA. Or don't. That's actually a terrible idea. While in the shop, Lana was spotted by William R. Wilkerson, the publisher of the trade publication The Hollywood Reporter. Wilkinson was drawn in by her beauty and asked Lana if she wanted to be in the pictures, to which she responded, quote, I'll have to ask my mother first. Well, Mama said yes, and Wilkerson hooked her up with the right people to get her seen. Lana was soon working for $50 a week for Warner Brothers, where she became the protege of director Mervyn Leroy, whom suggested that she take the stage name Lana Turner, a name she would come to legally adopt several years later. She would appear in a few small roles for Warner Brothers before Leroy relocated to MGM and convinced the studio to take on Lana as well. The usually super dickish Jack Warner agreed to this because he never thought Lana would amount to anything. While working on one of MGM's staple franchises, which was the Andy Hardy franchise, which starred Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, Lana finished high school. The film was a box office success, and Louis B. Mayer, the head of MGM, believed he had the next Gene Harlow, whom had died less than six months prior, with Lana Turner. More roles followed for Lana in mostly like family-friendly, coming-of-age films. She's only like 17, 18 years old at this point. And she even screen-tested for the role of Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. Her first role with top billing, though, would come in 1939 with Dancing Co-Ed, in which Lana played a professional dancer who enrolls in a college as part of a rigged national talent contest. The film was a smash and cemented Lana as a movie star and one of MGM's top talents. In February 1940, a 19-year-old Lana eloped with her first of seven husbands, eight marriages total, no judgment, Artie Shaw in Las Vegas. Artie was a band leader nine years her senior. The two agreed to get married after their first date. The marriage was highly publicized and lasted a whole four months. MGM executives reportedly began to grow concerned over Lana's, quote, impulsive behavior as a result. Professionally, Lana kicked off the 40s with her first musical, Two Girls on Broadway, which was a remake of the Broadway Melody. In 1941, she had a lead role in her second musical, Ziegfeld Girl, opposite Jimmy Stewart and Judy Garland. In the film, she played Sheila Reagan, an alcoholic and aspiring actress. MGM marketed Lana and the film as, quote, the best role of the biggest picture to be released by the industry's biggest company. It worked, the movie made bank, and MGM gave Lana a weekly salary raise to $1,500 a week, as well as a personal makeup artist and a trailer. Lana and Judy Garland also became lifelong friends during production and were actually next-door neighbors in the 1950s. During World War II, Lana's voluptuous image became a popular pan-up for soldiers, and her image appeared painted on the noses of U.S. fighter planes bearing the nickname Tempest Turner. Lana was one of many actors during this time that toured around the country to sell war bonds, often promising kisses to the highest buyer. She also entertained the troops and visited them in the hospitals. 
Clearly learning her lesson after her first marriage, Lana married her second husband, actor-turned-restaurateur Joseph Stephen Crane, one whole week after they'd met at a dinner party in 1942. Their marriage was annulled by Lana four months later upon discovering that Crane's previous divorce had not yet been finalized. But after discovering she was pregnant, Turner remarried Crane in Tijuana, Mexico in March 1943. The pregnancy was a difficult one for Lana as she had a condition that could cause fatal anemia, which made it tricky to carry a baby to term. Against all odds, Cheryl Christina Crane was born on July 25, 1943, and almost died because of complications due to her mother's blood condition. Lana would become pregnant several more times during her life, but none survived the birth. A year later, she kicked her husband to the curb in 1944, citing his gambling and unemployment as the primary reasons for the divorce. Cheryl, like most children of famous actors, was raised more by the help than her parents and was not quite the fan of the spotlight as her mother was. MGM decided to play up Lana's sex appeal with these multiple marriages as her popularity continued to rise. After the war, Lana transitioned from musicals and comedies to dramas with her role in 1946's The Postman Always Rings Twice, one of Lana's best-known parts. This role made her a cinema icon, a sex symbol, the noir genre personified. Little did she know, 12 years later, she'd be living her own noir nightmare. In 1948, Lana appeared in her first color film, an adaptation of The Three Musketeers. Around this time, she began dating Henry J. Topping Jr., a millionaire socialite whose brother owned the Yankees. Topping proposed to Lana by dropping a diamond ring into her martini, and they married shortly after at the Topping family mansion in Greenwich, Connecticut. The wedding revelry interfered with her filming schedule for The Three Musketeers, and she arrived to the set three days late. Musketeers would be the high point of her career before things started going downhill. After the failure of her film 1949's A Life of Her Own, MGM tried to rebrand Lana by putting her back in musicals. This didn't fix the problem, and by 1951, Lana was facing bankruptcy. Suffering from chronic depression over her career and financial problems, she attempted suicide in September of that year. She was saved by her business manager, who broke down the bathroom door and called emergency medical services. Lana would return to work on another musical the following year and also divorced topping. In the spring of 1953, Lana relocated to Europe for 18 months to shoot two films. When she returned to the United States in September 1953, Lana married English actor Lex Barker, whom she had been dating since their first meeting at a party held by Marion Davies in the summer of 1952. The couple divorced in 1957 after Cheryl claimed that Barker had abused her. According to Cheryl, Lana confronted Barker before forcing him out of their home at gunpoint. Professionally, back at MGM, Lana continued to be woefully unhappy with the role she was being given, and in 1956, MGM announced that they would not be renewing her contract. Lana was thrilled to be free after 18 years and hoped that better roles somewhere else would be on the horizon. She was right. Her role in 20th Century Fox's Peyton Place earned Lana her first and only Oscar nomination. And now, for the reason we're here. In spring of 1957, while Lana was shooting The Lady Takes a Flyer for Paramount, Lana had began receiving phone calls and flowers on the set from someone using the name John Steele. In reality, they were from mobster John Johnny Stompanato Jr. 
Stompanato was a former Marine turned bodyguard and eventual right-hand man for the gangster Mickey Cohen, as well as a mob enforcer. Soon after arriving in town, Stompanato became a part of the Hollywood scene and gained a reputation as a playboy with a taste for actresses. He met a contract player for Fox in 1952, whom became his third wife in 1953 and then third ex-wife in 1955. Throughout the 1950s, Stompanato was arrested by the LAPD seven times. Both the Hollywood entertainment community and the LAPD hated this man, but had to put up with him due to his deep mob ties. Lana later claimed that she didn't know how this fabulous member of society had obtained her phone number, but that she learned later in the press that he apparently collected the phone numbers of various Hollywood actresses. I like to think that doesn't happen anymore, but I bet that I bet it still does. It's so gross. Without allegedly knowing his mob ties at first, Lana and Stompanato casually started dating. When she eventually did find out, he reportedly told her, quote, If I revealed who I really was, you would not have had anything to do with me. Now that I have you, I'll never let you go. And things were not good, as you could probably guess. Lana and Stompanato carried on a volatile relationship filled with raucous arguments and physical abuse, which always ended in a reconciliation. Oh, and she paid for everything, by the by. Cheryl, Lana's daughter, if you forgot, was often witness to these altercations. In September 1957, Lana was filming Another Time, Another Place in London while Stompanato remained in Los Angeles. She hoped that the distance would be enough to get him out of her life. Instead, when rumors flew that Lana and her co-star were hooking up, Stompanato flew to the UK and barged on set where he allegedly violently choked Lana. There are a couple versions of the story out there that are that differ as to whether or not this happened, but he for sure got on a plane to confront her in London. Sean Connery, Lana's co-star, forced him off the set. Lana then called Scotland Yard and ultimately had Stompanato deported from the UK. But despite him potentially assaulting her at work, if that if that actually did happen, they reconciled once more and spent January and February 1958 vacationing in Mexico. In March of that year, Lana attended the Academy Awards. She had been nominated and was also set to present the award for Best Supporting Actor. Stompanato, angry that she had attended the ceremony without him and took Cheryl instead, assaulted Lana when she arrived home. Eight days later, though, he would be dead. On April 1st, another alleged fight broke out between the two at Lana's mother's house, and this time Stompanato punched Lana in the face and threatened to cut her. Cheryl was there to witness this fight as well. Lana allegedly told her daughter that she was desperate to get away from him, but was too frightened of what he would do if she tried to leave. Cheryl later said that Lana then begged for her help, you know, the child. According to court proceedings, Lana planned to end things for good with Stompanato on the night of April 4th, 1958, and warned Cheryl that things were probably gonna get nasty. Stompanato came over around 8 p.m. to the house, only to have Turner allegedly say, quote, Tonight, mister, I'm giving you your walking papers. I'm through with you. It's over. Which totally sounds like things people say. So, yeah, here we are. Here's what Lana and Cheryl claimed happened next. During the argument, Stompanato threatened to kill Lana, Cheryl, and Lana's mother. 
He was also making quote unquote gangster threats, whatever that means. Sleeping with the fishes? Is sleeping with the fishes a gangster threat? I don't know. Cheryl, whom had been watching TV in another room, had briefly entered the bedroom where the argument was taking place, but was urged by her mother to leave. According to Lana, what happened next was, quote, he grabbed me by the arms and started shaking me and cursing me very badly and saying that if he said jump, I would jump. If he said hop, I would hop and I would have to do anything and everything he told me or he'd cut my face or cripple me. Hearing all of this, I'm sure for the millionth time and allegedly fearing that her mother's life was in actual mortal danger, Cheryl grabbed a newly purchased kitchen knife and ran to her mother's defense. She recalled the incident in 2012. Quote, there's a knife on the counter. I picked it up and ran back up the stairs. Her door suddenly flies open. I see John coming toward me. He's got his hands up. I raise the knife and he walks right into it. And he looked at me and he said, quote, my God, Cheryl, what have you done? Lana corroborated this version of events, which is more or less the same as the one Cheryl had given back in 1958. Lana stated that she initially thought that her daughter had punched Stompanato, but realized he had been stabbed when he collapsed and she saw the blood on his shirt. Per official police accounts, Cheryl left the room, placing the knife on a small table and rushed to call her father. Lana, meanwhile, called her mother, whom called the family doctor, who arrived at the house shortly thereafter. The doctor attempted to revive Stompanato with an adrenaline injection and an artificial respirator, but unable to revive him, the doctor called for emergency services, therefore notifying the police, and Stompanato was declared dead at the scene. An autopsy conducted shortly thereafter would reveal that Stompanato's death was caused by a single knife wound that penetrated his liver, portal vein, and aorta, which caused the fatal internal hemorrhaging. Police Chief Clinton Anderson, who arrived at the Turner Crane home shortly after the paramedics, stated that Lana had pleaded to him, quote, please let me say I did it, after Cheryl had confessed to the stabbing to her father, who had also arrived at the home. Quote, I did it, Daddy, but I didn't mean to. He was going to hurt Mommy. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. These words, overheard by reporters whom had swarmed the scene, would be plastered in all the papers the next morning as Hollywood read about the scandalous events of the night before. It wasn't long before people were speculating about how a 14-year-old girl could have been capable of murdering a 173-pound ex-Marine. Within one hour of the homicide, Lana and her ex-husband had retained an attorney to represent Cheryl. Some sources say he was called before the doctor was. In the early hours of April 5th, Cheryl was surrendered at the Beverly Hills Police Department, where she was booked on a holding charge. There, she gave a formal statement to Chief Anderson. After Cheryl had provided her statement, her parents and attorney left the station at the insistence of the police department as the press had already, quote, gathered like vultures. Cheryl was interned in a juvenile hall facility to await further legal proceedings. Due to Lana being, you know, a full-blown movie star and the fact that the killing involved her teenage daughter, the case quickly became a full-ass scandal. Many reporters and columnists turned against Lana, citing her sketchy past and numerous husbands and lovers as proof of her loose morals. Clearly, she was a murderer. Salacious rumors had begun circulating almost immediately that Lana had killed Stompanato after finding him in bed with Cheryl. 
Further, letters between her and Stampinato were stolen and made public, in which she had alluded to the fact that she liked a little bit of sadomasochism. She also made reference to the fact that his rough treatment was a little bit of a turn-on, which did not go over great in 1958. So, by the time of the coroner's inquest, the press was out for blood, specifically Lana's. Over 100 reporters and journalists attended the April 11, 1958 coroner's inquest, described by attendees after the case as, quote, near riotous. This inquest was to determine whether or not Cheryl should be prosecuted for the crime. During the inquest, Mickey Cohen was called as the first witness, but refused to provide testimony as he feared he might be fingered for the crime, and he also refused to even identify Stampinato's body in photographs. Cheryl's father, grandmother, and mother all took the stand, though her grandmother was so upset she couldn't testify. Cheryl did not get her day in court and was not even present for the inquest, so in her absence, a written statement was read aloud. In it, the 14-year-old recounted her overhearing of the argument, her acquiring of the knife from the kitchen, and the eventual stabbing of Stampinato in her mother's bedroom. When Lana had taken the stand, she recounted a shopping trip she had taken with Stampinato around 2 p.m. on the day of his death, culminating in the fatal argument. Recalling the moment Cheryl stabbed him, Lana testified, quote, I swear, it was so fast. I truthfully thought she had hit him in the stomach. The best I can remember, they came together and they parted. I still never saw a blade. Throughout her 62 minutes of testimony, Lana was noted by reporters as nearly collapsing from anxiety. She further described Stampinato's final moments, which consisted of, quote, the most horrible noises in his throat and gasping. Upon finishing her testimony, Lana returned to her attorney, collapsing in tears. After hearing about four hours of testimony, the jury deliberated for about 25 minutes and ultimately deemed Stampinato's killing a justifiable homicide and exonerated Cheryl. After a follow-up hearing, it was determined that Cheryl would become a ward of the state, as clearly she had inept parents and the judge feared for her safety. She was admitted to an L.A. juvenile facility where she underwent psychiatric therapy. She would attempt to escape from that facility twice. In January 1961, Cheryl was released to the custody of her mother and new stepfather. Yep, Lana got remarried again. But worried that she was still suffering from the trauma of Stampinato's death, Lana sent Cheryl to an institute in Connecticut. Hollywood mothers and their daughters from this era, like, did not have healthy relationships, did they? It's like, I'm thinking like Joan Crawford, Betty Davis, like, it's just like a whole, like, Jesus. Though everyone was cleared of any wrongdoing, public opinion on the case was varied, and the day after Cheryl's exoneration, the LA Times had published a scathing article stating that Lana possessed a, quote, lack of almost any reference to moral sensitivity in the presence of a child, and concluding that, quote, Cheryl isn't the juvenile delinquent, Lana is. Other publications believed that Lana's entire testimony at the inquest was a just a performance. Life magazine even published a photo of Lana testifying in court next to stills of her in courtroom scenes from three films she had starred in. Stompanato's brother Carmine, who had attended the coroner's inquest, alleged after the inquest that he felt Lana, quote, failed to tell the whole truth and that law enforcement had, quote, made up their mind right from the start that Johnny deserved to die. 
Let's be honest, the LAP hated Stompanato but couldn't touch him for fear of mob retaliation. So it stands to reason they could have like looked at it like, Lana, Cheryl, who cares who did it? A huge pain in their asses is in the ground thanks to one of them. And it's not like they're going to like spend a lot of time sussing things out when they kind of took care of a bigger problem for him. That honestly makes sense to me. But it wasn't over yet. Stompanato's ex-wife, Sarah Ibrahim, filed a wrongful death suit for $750,000, which is equivalent to about $7 million in today money in damages, against Lana, Cheryl, and ex-hubby Stephen on behalf of herself and then seven-year-old John Jr., her son with Stompanato. In the suit, it was implied that Lana was responsible for stabbing Stompanato and that her daughter had taken the blame. The suit further alleged that Stephen arrived at his ex-wife's residence prior to Stompanato's death and failed to summon proper medical assistance. And they had some evidence and people who would back up these claims. Depositions in the wrongful death suit began in June 1958. The attorney overseeing the case presented evidence suggesting that Stompanato had been stabbed while lying down, not while standing up, as Lana and Cheryl had claimed. Ibrahim further stated that she was uncertain as to whether Lana or Cheryl killed her ex-husband, and therefore both of them had to be responsible. In a weird play, the lawyer from the Turner Crane camp reported, quote, Cheryl told me yesterday that she cannot recall actually stabbing Stompanato in the pink carpeted bedroom of Lana's rented Beverly Hills mansion. He further stated that Cheryl could not recall providing the written statement read on her behalf during the April 11th inquest, which is sketchy a little bit, but she was like a 14-year-old experiencing a traumatic event, so you can kind of write that off as maybe an anxiety blackout. It also kind of, you know... They weirdly kind of played it up like, ooh, who could have done it? And then, you know, can't really do anything about a wrongful death suit if we don't know who did it. So, you know, interesting play. Also, another weird thing, the murder weapon had been found in the sink of Lana's ensuite bathroom, not on a table in the hall where Cheryl claimed she left it, and the knife had no fingerprints on the handle, just a bloody smudge. Whatever evidence that Ibrahim claimed to have, the suit was eventually settled out of court for a reported $20,000 in May 1962, a far less sum than what she was trying to get. In the intervening years, several people who were close to Lana and the case have claimed that she confessed to them that it was her that wielded the knife that fateful evening. A detective on the case has since stated that he even helped cover up the crime. Eric Root, a hairdresser of Lana's, claimed in a 1996 memoir about their relationship that she had confessed to him that she had stabbed Stompanato during their fight. According to Root, Lana made the confession to him years later at the Plaza Hotel after the two had seen a television show referencing the case. Root claims that Lana allegedly blurted out, quote, I killed the son of a bitch and I would do it again. He also claimed that Lana wanted him to reveal this to the public if she died before Root in order to clear her daughter's name. Cheryl, however, denied this, responding in 1999, quote, This idea that Root had in his book is so far-fetched. You know, everybody has something they want to sell. I guess it was the only way he could get his book published. 
Additionally, MGM stylist Sidney Gilleroff noted in his 1996 memoir, Big Year for Narcan on Lana Turner, I guess, was 1996, that on the morning of Stampanato's murder, he had run into Lana leaving the Pioneer Hardware Store in Beverly Hills. During their brief conversation, Gilleroff alleged that when he asked Lana what she was doing at the hardware store, she responded, quote, we needed a new knife. Gilleroff further claimed that he visited Lana the following day and that she collapsed in his arms, sobbing and said, quote, Did you ever dream that this could happen? And with the very knife I bought yesterday. In her own autobiography, Lana confirmed that she and Stompanato had gone shopping for kitchen utensils for her new home the week he died and that he had, in fact, been stabbed with one of the carving knives she had purchased. In 2012, 48 Hours aired a special covering the case, which featured several historians, Cheryl and John Jr. John Jr. stated that Lana's testimony was, quote, all lies, and that she, quote, could have got an Academy Award, to which Cheryl lengthily responded, quote, she was not acting. She was terrified. I know my mother. She was fighting for her child. I have come up against this question hundreds of times. Quote, did your mother do it? Isn't she really the one that did it? End quote. I killed John Stompanato, and I didn't do it to cover it up for my mother. What mother would do this to her child? To make her child live through her life, knowing that she's killed somebody and have to live with it. Who would do that? Not my mother. Not the woman I know. And like I said, it's even possible that the LAPD helped cover up the fact that Lana did the murder. In 2017, Darwin Porter released the book Lana Turner, Hearts and Diamonds Take All, which provides further quote-unquote evidence that Lana, not Cheryl, committed the murder. In the book, Porter interviewed a detective that was present that night, Fred Otash, who claimed to have wiped the prints off of the knife in the sink after being summoned there by Jerry Geisler, Lana's lawyer. Geisler was known for getting the Hollywood elite out of trouble from situations like this. Otash claims in the book that when he arrived, Stompanato was on Lana's bed, not on the floor. He also claimed overhearing Geisler telling them that Cheryl should take the blame as, being a child, she would not stand trial. He also, Otash also claims that Lana had found Stompanato and Cheryl asleep in her bed. Whether she did it or not... Lana went on to once again have a successful career, as well as two more husbands. The last one was a hypnotist with a fake PhD, so her ability to choose men never got better. In 1966, she starred in her last major film, Madam X. Lana filed for divorce from the hypnotist in January 1970, after which she claimed to be celibate for the remainder of her life. She later famously said, quote, My goal was to have one husband and seven children, but it turned out to be the other way around. Lana would work here and there in the theater as well as television, with her last role being a three-episode arc on The Love Boat in 1985. Eventually, a lifetime of drinking and smoking, the latter of which MGM had desperately tried to hide, Lana was diagnosed with throat cancer in 1992. She died at the age of 74 on June 29, 1995. Cheryl was by her side. 
Speaking of Cheryl, she had a rough couple of years as a young woman. In April 1970, she was detained by the LAPD when three marijuana plants were discovered in the backseat of her car. That same year, she began dating female model Josh Leroy, to whom she was introduced to by Marlon Brando. Cheryl also did some modeling. She was like five foot nine, statuesque, very pretty, pretty girl. The couple relocated to Hawaii, where Cheryl became a real estate broker and then later moved to San Francisco. On the heels of several other daughters of famous actresses doing the same. In 1988, 30 years after she allegedly killed Stompanato, Cheryl published a memoir, Detour, A Hollywood Story, in which she discussed the Stompanato killing publicly for the first time and once again took responsibility for the stabbing. As of 2018, Cheryl is still in real estate and has written several more books, some of which are also about her mother. If she is covering for her mother, it seems to be a secret Cheryl will happily take to the grave. So, who killed Johnny Stompanato? A terrified teen or an actress whom gave her best ever performance to conceal the truth? Operator, operator, this is Twin Oaks. I want a doctor. Any doctor, quick, there's... There's been an accident. But I don't want an ambulance. I want a doctor. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. I've also set up a buy me a coffee if you'd like to just like buy me a coffee so I can stay up late and write this podcast after an eight hour day at work or, you know, in any way whatsoever, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Next week, we cover the mysterious and tragic deaths of Bruce and Brandon Lee. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.